And we do want to thank you for bringing your dollars and putting them in the basket and your cans of food because they are used for a good cause. Sandy's Bible class this uh, week, Vacation Bible School, she had an event. What did you call it? Uh, it wasn't called a blanket event. What was it called? Chicken on the quilts. Chicken on the quilts. Chicken on the quilts. Now, you have to realize there's about 101 out there on the quilts. <laughs> but that didn't keep the kids from coming out and getting their chicken and eating them on the quilts, <clears throat> which were just old blankets. You know? uh, she had 65 kids show up for that event. You know? So discontinue to support that ministry by giving your dollars and your cans, and uh, we'll be helping a lot of people over the years. Okay, Psalm 32. You ready? Now, this is one of the great psalms that deals with atonement and forgiveness. And one commentator suggested that this was a psalm uh, that was sung on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. We don't know if that's the case, but that was uh, his estimation. But I'll give you a few interesting tidbits. Uh, when Martin Luther, the, the father of the Reformation, was asked his opinion on which of the 150 psalms was the best psalm, he listed four of them, and he said Psalm 32 is the most important of the four. Now, the reason he felt that was because if you look at verse 2, it says, Blessed is the man whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. And that is quoted in Romans chapter 4, and I believe verses 7 and 8. And it's the basis of Martin Luther's great doctrine of justification by faith. That if you trust the Lord, the Lord does not impute or put to your account your sin, but he puts it to Christ's account. So Luther saw this as the basis for the doctrine of justification by faith. That's very interesting. Now also, Psalm 32 is the second of seven penitential psalms. Now, you remember the penitential psalms are psalms that people... Uh, it's a psalm that David writes from which he cries out from his heart, a contrite heart, and he repents of his sin. He's a penitent. There are seven penitential psalms. The first one was Psalm 6, which we've covered, and this is the second of those. You'll also notice the superscription over the psalm, which says a psalm of David, and then... Mine says a contemplation, yours may say a teaching, but the Hebrew word is maskele, and it means a, an artful song or a didactic song. A didactic song is a song or a psalm that teaches something, instructs somebody about something. And this psalm has a lot of teaching in it, and you'll see David has one major teaching that he wants to give his people. So with that, let's look at the outline of this psalm. And, uh, I've discovered that the psalms, when you read them at first glance, can seem confusing. But if you can somehow find the outline, they become very simple. So again, I want to give you an outline of the psalm. So here's how I'm going to divide it. Verses 1 and 2, we're going to call this the joy of forgiveness. And you'll see why we're going to give it that title, the joy of forgiveness. Verses 3 through 5, the results of sin. He's going to give us his experience of what it was like to live in sin. The sin that he's describing we do not know, but maybe uh, what it was like to 
live in sin with Bathsheba when he committed adultery with Bathsheba. So some commentators think that's sort of the, the backdrop to this song. Okay? Number three, verses six and seven. David's advice or his instructions to his people. What he's learned from this that he wants to uh, give his people. Going to give them some teaching. And in verses 8 and 9, divine instructions. Okay? Verses 6 and 7, David's instructions. Verses 8 and 9, divine instructions. God gives us some teaching. And then the last section, verses 10 and 11, lessons that are learned from this psalm. Okay? So let's go to the first part, the joy of salvation. Let's look at verse 1. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Now, in uh, typical Hebrew poetry format, line one in this verse and line two basically mean the same thing. So, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven. That's line one. Another way of saying it, blessed is the man whose sin is covered. Now, notice the word forgiven. That means release. Okay? To be freed from something. Have something lifted off of you or removed from you. Blessed is the man whose transgression is lifted off of him or removed from him or is released from that. And then the second line, blessed is the man whose sin is covered. Now when you see the word covered, you say, well that doesn't look like it means the same thing as forgiveness, but it does. Because this word covered doesn't mean that God covers our sin with something. Like I'm covering my hand with this book. The word covered here is likened to a debt that you owe or a bill that you have to pay. And I come along and say, hey, I'll cover that. And if I cover it, guess what it means? It's covered. It doesn't mean I'm covering it, does it, literally. It means that you're free. You're released from paying the bill or the debt. I'm going to pay it for you. So that's what God does. He releases us from the transgression and the sin that we had on our account. It no longer exists. And then look what he says in verse 2. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. Now, if you see that phrase, blessed is the man, what does that make you think of? Blessed is the man... That walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly. It brings you right back to Psalm 1. Remember we said Psalm 1 is sort of like the basis for this whole first book of Psalms. And what you have here is you have, uh, Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. Does not reckon to that man's account iniquity. In other words, it's paid in full. So, the, to not impute a person's sin is the same thing as forgiving their sin. It's the same thing as covering their sin. So these two verses say basically the same thing. But, it's very interesting when you think of Psalm 1 and you think of Psalm 32, blessed is the man. These are two ways to be blessed. Okay, Psalm number 1, blessed is the man who walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly. You want to be blessed? Just live a pure, righteous life in the will of God. You're blessed. But there's a second way of being blessed, and that's verse 30, uh, uh, verse, uh, Psalm 32 and verse 1 and 2, and that is the person whose 
sin is not imputed to him. In other words, there are two ways to be blessed. One is not to sin, and you're going to get blessed. And guess what the second way is? If you sin, better get a bath. The first way is to live a pure life. The second way is, hey, if you sin and you get dirty, guess what you need to do? Get that dirt off of you. You need to take a bath. And how do you do it? God's spiritual bath is that He takes it away from you. Now, in my opinion, it's better to be blessed according to the pattern of Psalm 1, living a pure life, rather than getting yourself in Dutch and then having to be pulled out of that situation. And uh, David knows both of those blessings. He knows what it is to be blessed when he walks in the will of the Lord, and he knows what it is to receive God's blessing when God forgives him of his sin. But I'll tell you, the first way of being blessed is much better than the second way. I have students that come up to me in my personal evangelism class, and each student is required to give a personal testimony. And I'll have a student come up and say, I don't have any testimony. And I'll say, what do you mean? Say, well, I never really did hang around with bad people. I grew up in a Christian home. And they didn't get themselves into a big mess like most of my students. Most of my students have gotten themselves and they got, you know, they were on drugs and they did this, they did that. And, uh, and I said, you know something? You are the one who's really blessed. Because you didn't have to go through all that nonsense. You lived a pure life. And I want to tell you that that's better than having, getting your life all messed up, paying the consequences for it, and then ending up uh, having to be forgiven. Okay, now look... Also at verse number two. I'm getting a little feedback. Anybody else getting some, or is that just me up here? Or just me? Uh, Now look at the end of verse two. Let's see where we are. Uh, It says, And blessed is the man in whose spirit there is no deceit. Now, this means... Self-deceit. You want to be blessed? Don't deceive yourself. Don't be like the Pharisees. Who said, there's nothing wrong with me. See, there's deceit in that person's spirit. It's not that they're just deceiving other people, but you're deceiving yourself. The person who's blessed is the person who recognizes his sin, and then guess what he does? He confesses his sin. Now notice how evil or being outside of God's will is described in these two verses. Four different ways. Transgression, sin, iniquity, and deceit. You see that? Four different aspects of evil or being outside of God's will. Transgression means to uh, step beyond the mark. Step beyond the mark. To overreach. Sin, the next word, means to miss the mark. Become short. One is to overreach, and the other is to come short. These are sins of commission, sins of omission. See? One is you overreach, you do what you're not supposed to do. The other one, you don't do what you're supposed to do, you fall short of the mark. And then iniquity means perversion, wickedness. And deceit, of course, means self-deception or fraud. So, we have the joy of being forgiven. Blessed is the man. Okay, now look at the second section. 
verses 3 through 5. The results of sin. The results of sin. Now David looks back on his life and he sort of relates or tells the experiences of what happened as a result of his sin. And it's very interesting. He says in verse 3, When I kept silent, meaning about my sin, when I didn't confess it, when I was self-deceived and I was justifying what I was trying to do. Verse 3. When I kept silent, look what happened. My bones grew old through my groaning all day long. This is what it was like to live in sin before forgiveness. As long as he remained silent, he paid a price. And we see that he ached, his bones ached, he was getting older, not because he had a birthday, but just because of his sin. And he groaned. Now, it's very interesting, he may have been silent about his sin. But he wasn't silent in his sin. Because in the midst of the sinning, what was he doing? Groaning. And you pay a price when you sin. And David's describing what it was like to be living in sin. Look what he says in verse 4. For night and day, he says to, to God, your hand was heavy upon me. This is the reason for his misery. This is the reason for his suffering. This is the source of his pain. Now notice, he says, God's hand was heavy on me. Now notice the difference. In forgiveness, God makes you lighter. He takes something off of you. He takes the sin off of you. You're released from the sin. But when you're living in sin, guess what he does? His heavy hand is pressing down on you. So there's a difference between being released from sin, being free as a bird, and having God's heavy hand on you, and you feel the burden of your sin. Shackled by a heavy burden. As Bill Gaither wrote in his, his famous song. So, God's hand was heavy upon him. Some of you may be experiencing the heavy hand of God. And notice that he says that God's doing it. God's the source of those pains that he's experiencing. The bones getting old. His face drooping. And he, the dark circles under his eyes. He says God is the one who's disciplining him with his heavy hand. And so uh, he realizes that. And look what he says at the end of verse 4. My vitality was turned into the drought of summer. The old King James says my moisture was turned into the drought of summer. This is describing a person who's out in the desert without any water. And what happens when you're out in the desert without any water? Yeah, you dehydrate is exactly what happens. And you, your moisture in your body evaporates and you, uh, your vitality, your life, uh, is just drained from your body. I was talking to Dr. Kane a few moments ago and he said, this weather is very difficult because I go from one facility to another to treat patients. And I have to get in my car about 120 degrees and drive to the next facility. I get out, the sun's flaring down. And then you go into a facility for a few minutes even 20 minutes, and guess what? You're still hot, aren't you? Your body doesn't cool down. If you don't replenish the fluid, you just drag the vitality, just is drained from your body. And so, then you go back out in your car, and you get into that car, it's 120 degrees again. Go to the next facility. That's what David's describing here, but guess what he says? 
It's happening not because I'm living in 103 or 104 degree temperature day in and day out. This is happening because I'm living in sin. And it's just like every ounce of my life has been sacked out of me. Just like that. And I want you to notice in verses 3 and 4 you see three mys there. Look at this. My bones. Look at this. My groaning. My vitality. His bones ache. He's growing. His life is being drained from him. Three mys and one your. Look at verse 4. Your hand is upon me. Three mys and one your. The three mys are a result of the one your there. This is God against David. That's the reverse of Romans 8. If God be for you, who can be against you? You want to know what the reverse is? If God's against you, who can be for you? And the answer is no one. Because when God puts that heavy hand on you, you're down for the count until he lifts it off. And when he lifts it off, you know when he lifts it off? It's when you stop remaining silent and you stop deceiving yourself. And you confess. When you do that, he lifts it off and with his hands being lifted off, the sin is lifted off as well. So he's describing the existence of living in sin and the results of that. Now look at verse 5. Here's the solution to his problem. He said, I acknowledged my sin to you. Hey, guess what? He came to his senses. Sounds like the prodigal son, doesn't it? I acknowledged my sin to you and my iniquity I have not hidden. I didn't try to cover it up. Remember, this is what we tend to do. We sin and we cover it up. We want to we silence it. Uh, Adam and Eve, after they sin, they go and hide. They cover themselves. Uh, think of Watergate. Great cover-up. But every sense, ever since there's been these cover-ups in the government. And that's what we try to do. We try to cover our sins. And that's what David was trying to do. He said, as long as I covered my sin, as long as I remained silent, these were the results. But then I came to my senses and I confessed my sin and I didn't try to hide it anymore. When did that happen? It happened when Nathan came and he told David a story and he said, what would you do to the person who did that? And David said, I'd kill him! <laughs> and Nathan said, thou art the man. You're the one I'm talking about. How long then did it take David to repent and confess and get back with God? Just like that. And it was at that point that God lifted the burden off of his shoulders. So he said, I acknowledge you in verse 5, my sin to you, and my iniquity I have not hidden. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And guess what God did? He said, and you forgave my iniquity, the iniquity, the wickedness of my sin. So, and then he has a musical notation in there uh, as he had at the end of verse 4, Selah, which is sort of directions to the, the choir director when they sing the song, what to do at this point. And we don't know what there's probably some sort of, you know, great... Um, Flare of music going up, da 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 da, da, da. And you hear, you hear the birds fly free, you know, all kind of 
Yeah, there's a difference between uh, being as free as a bird and being burdened like a, you know, an ox with the weight of the world on your shoulders. At this point, he says, I've been free, and you can just see the music. The director is told to do something that signifies that he has been freed from his sin. Now, he gives us instructions, David's instructions. Look at verse 6. For this cause, in light of my experience, what I've learned, what God does when we sin and what he does when we confess, look what he says. For this cause, everyone who is godly shall pray to you. Now, even though he's talking to God, he's really talking to his people. And he's telling them to pray to God. Look at this. Shall pray to you in a time when you may be found. What's he saying? In light of this, everyone who is godly shall pray to you in a time when you may be found. What's he trying to say? He's saying, hey, don't wait. You need to pray to God and seek God while he may be found. That's what Isaiah the prophet said. Seek the Lord while he may be found. And so, we need to pray. We need to pray quickly when we sin. We shouldn't wait too long because what happens is we may miss the opportunity. God never promises that we'll always have an opportunity to be forgiven. We think we will. We say, oh, God's great grace is so great, and His grace is so great. But, it doesn't last forever. You can reach a point of no return where it's too late to pray. And God gives you up. Isn't that what Romans says? And so God gave them up. Too late. So you need to pray and confess while there is still time. That's why the time for forgiveness is always right now. Now we've heard cases of people who have been in accidents in these past several weeks. And guess what? Just like that, their life was stopped out. We don't know what the, their spiritual condition was, but let's assume hypothetically that we have a person driving down the road, living in sense of, I intend to get right with the Lord. Or maybe they don't even intend, but guess what? Just like this, their life is stopped out. Is it too late then? Yeah. So you need to seek the Lord while he may be found. And that's what David is saying here. He says this at the end of verse 6. He says, surely, which means of a certainty, in a flood of great waters, they shall not come near him. That means the person who confesses to the Lord in the allotted time, that person is going to be delivered from the great flood waters. They shall not come near him. So he's describing uh, the importance of keeping short accounts with the Lord. And when you do that, God promises that if you keep short accounts with him, that you will not be overwhelmed by the circumstances. A spiritual tsunami will not overtake you and wipe you away. Because guess what? You'll be like Noah. When the flood comes, you're protected. See? But that's only for the person who sought forgiveness and has kept those short accounts with the Lord. So that's why... Uh, the writer of Hebrews says, you know, whenever there's always a way of escape. God has given us a way of escape. 
And we need to take that way of escape, and when we do, the great waters of a flood will not come near to you. That means you will not be overwhelmed and totally wiped away. And then look what he says in verse 7. You are my hiding place. You shall preserve me from trouble. You shall surround me with the songs of deliverance. You see the three U's there? And what he's basically saying is that God is our shelter in time of need. And then he gives another musical notation to the choir director, what he should do at this point. So you could just see those verses coming. You are my hiding place. You shall preserve me from trouble. You shall surround me with the songs of deliverance. And so he's telling his people to keep short accounts and seek God while there's still time. Now, in verse 8 we have the next section, divine instructions. Okay, look what it says. This is God speaking. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. And I will guide you with my eye. Now this is a promise. Do you see that? I will instruct you. I will guide you. This is God's promise to David and it's his promise to us. Guess what God will do? He will instruct us. He'll teach us what we should do. And not only will he teach us what we should do, he'll guide us. He will lead us in what we shall do. And it says he will lead us with his eye. Now, I'm not sure what that means. One thing I know it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that he's just going to look down at you and give you an eye signal and you're supposed to follow him. It doesn't mean that. Okay. First of all, God doesn't have physical eyes like we have physical eyes. Do you agree with that? God is a what? Spirit. That's right. God doesn't have a body. So this is what we're going to call... A metaphorical language. He says, I'm going to guide you with my eyes. Probably what he simply means is this, I'll keep an eye on you. Those floodwaters won't overtake you. You know, I'm your hiding place. I'll oversee the path of your life, is what he's probably saying there. This is his promise to those of us who confess our sin in the allotted time. Look at verse 9. He says, these are instructions for you and me, as well as David. Don't be like the horse... Or like the mule, which have no understanding. I've never seen a horse or a mule that can quote the Ten Commandments. They have no moral compass, do they? You say, now horse? That's not what horses are supposed to do. You shouldn't go to the bathroom in the middle of the street. The horse don't care, doesn't care about that. Neither does a mule. They'll do whatever they want to do. You shouldn't eat my wife's rose bush. Oh yeah, guess what? They'll do it. Some goats, and, you know, that's just the way it is. They have no moral compass. See that? Or none. Don't be like the horse or like the mule that has no understanding. An understanding of God even. Spiritual understanding. Look at this. Which must be harnessed with bit and bridle else they not come to you. Now notice that. The only way you're going to get a wild stallion to follow. The only way you're going to get a stubborn mule to obey you is to force them. To pressure them. You don't say, here, horsey, 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 horsey. <laughs> I don't even like dogs, do No, guess what you do? You put the bit in its mouth and you put the bridle over its head. You got the reins in your hands. Then you guide the horse. Hey, you want God to take care of your life? 
by putting the bit in your mouth and the bridle on your head and the reins in his hand and force you to do what he wants you to do? You want him to put that heavy hand, that pressure on you to get you to do what you what he wants you to do? He says, don't be like the horse that has to be bridled. Don't be like the mule. Hey, there's a better way to do it. You know what the way to do it is? Just right up front, do what he wants you to do. And if you make the mistake, confess it and get on with your life. Follow God. He's giving you have understanding. He's put a spirit in you where you have understanding. So, uh, if this is this is not what you want. This is not how we want God to draw us to Himself through force. That's what He had to do with David. David separated himself so far from God because of his sin with Bathsheba, and he was justifying it. Tried to get rid of her husband and did get rid of her husband. But God had to treat David like the horse, like a mule. Had to put pressure on him. That got his attention. That moved him toward God. Hey, these are instructions. Don't be like the horse or like the mule, which has no understanding, which must be harnessed with bit or bridle, else they come not near you. So, I would much rather be blessed according to Psalm 1 and just walk in the pathways of the Lord and not in the ways of the wicked than to be blessed by Psalm 32 where I have to confess, get myself in trouble and then get myself out of it through confession. And then we come to the last section, these lessons learned. Lessons learned. Look at the first lesson. Verse 10. Many sorrows shall be to the wicked. Notice the word many. It's not going to be easy. This is a person who decides to control their own life. It's going to be stubborn like a mule, do it their own way. You'll end up in a ditch somewhere. Many shall be the sorrows of the wicked. But, he who trusts in the Lord, mercy shall surround him. Now this is simply a repeat of verses 3 and 4 and 7. So, what we have here is a statement of truth. And then, that's what I don't want. I don't want the sorrows in verse 10. I want the mercy in verse 10. And we have to choose what we want there. Verse 11 says, Be glad in the Lord, and rejoice, you righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Now notice where he says, be glad in the Lord. You see, that's a duty. You see, that's a, that is an obligation. You see, that is a command. We have a duty to do something. And you know what our duty is? Be glad. Why are we so miserable? Our duty is to be glad. Where are we to find our happiness? There. In the Lord. You see that? Be glad in the Lord. And then look what he says. Rejoice! You righteous. Not enough to just be glad inside. You need to let somebody know it. You should rejoice. Say, praise the Lord. And then look what he says in verse 11. And shout! Look. Increase the volume. Louder, please! <coughs> praise the Lord. God says, louder, please! So we're ordered to be glad, we're ordered to rejoice, and we're ordered to increase the volume. Say, 
And uh, when we do that, that's a solution. Because we should find our gladness and our happiness and our blessedness in the Lord, not in other people and other things. So we have to keep our eyes focused on the Lord. And when we do that, we will rejoice and we will shout for joy. See, that is a real secret. We know that Philippians 4.4, Paul says, Rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say rejoice. And we all know this voice, this verse. The joy of the Lord is our... Did you ever think of that? You need the strength to live the Christian life? Guess what the answer is? The joy of the Lord. If you do this, if you're joyful in the Lord, you can live according to a Psalm, a Psalm 1. You can live a Psalm 1 life. If you don't rejoice in the Lord, you don't have the strength. And you start finding your satisfaction in other things, and you lose your strength in your vitality. And you end up in the other situation. So Paul, after, or David rather, after uh, getting himself into a real mess that he couldn't get himself out of, finally comes to his senses and cries out to God in the nick of time, and God spares him. And he tells this story, and he instructs us so that we can learn from his experience vicariously and don't have to experience it for ourselves. We'll pick up at Psalm 33 next week. Father, I thank you for this psalm uh, that gives us instructions on how to live. Help us not to cover up our sin. Help us to keep short accounts with you and to confess. Help us to realize you've given us an antidote to the problem that we can get ourselves into. We can rejoice in you and you will give us the strength to live a life that pleases you, a life that follows your will. Oh Lord, this is what we want to do. We want to be positive witnesses for Christ. We want to have a life that's blessed according to Psalm 1, not 32. But Lord, help us to realize if we've messed up, we can come to you. And uh, you are our hiding place. You are the one who will protect us and guide us. Help us, like David, make these midlife corrections and get on the right road. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.